Well, let's pray one more time and ask for God's help as we open the word together this morning. Father, that you would reveal yourself to us, not just as a shepherd, but the good shepherd, is remarkable to us. Because to be such a leader as you are means that you care for people who are much like sheep. Weak, defenseless, not even able to lead themselves or provide for themselves. Prone to straying and wandering. Vulnerable from the attacks of predators. And how fitting this metaphor of sheep is for us when we consider our existence in this world. And though we work hard, we really are not able to provide for ourselves and, and provide security, provide resources. We don't know the future, and there are evil people and evil purposes in the world that often afflict us. Harm is done, we hurt, we ache, we suffer. We know that we are vulnerable. How good it is to know that there is a God in heaven who is the good shepherd, who makes it his purpose to seek the lost, to bind up the broken and wounded ones and heal them, to protect the weak and vulnerable ones, to provide the nourishment not just for our physical bodies, but for our souls. And you do so in a way that not only satisfies us, but generously provides far more than we could ask or think. Oh, how we need you. Good shepherd, would you draw near to us today? We're just one little gathering and yet the needs in this room are so far beyond our resources, our wisdom, our understanding, that only in you can they be met. So I ask that you would do your shepherding work right here in this hour. That you would leave, lead us for your namesake and not leave one precious one behind. We know that we need to repent of our sins. Repentance is ongoing because daily we turn away from you. Daily we seek to satisfy our souls in things other than the Christ. Sometimes we defiantly rebel. Sometimes we just carelessly rebel. But rebellion is natural to us. Would you take that rebelliousness out and by your supernatural power put hearts of obedience and submission and humility and faith? We ask that you would give us understanding of your word that we may receive it as the holy food it is, a word given to build us up in the faith, to give us the knowledge of Jesus Christ as he truly is, a knowledge of ourselves, a knowledge of the purpose that you've called us to, a knowledge of eternal life. Give us that understanding, we pray. 
And as we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, it is with hope and expectation that you will hear us for His sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. It's the second book in the New Testament, one of four Gospels that have been given recounting the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Mark 6 and verse 30. Have you ever been a guest in someone's home or at a banquet when you felt so generously provided for that it was astonishing, if not a little embarrassing? I mean, where there was course after course brought out to the point where not only you could not eat anymore, but you began to realize how much care and attention and even sacrifice had gone into that meal. I've probably had a handful of meals like what I'm describing to you, but there's one that stands out to me from uh, a really special experience where two other friends and I had traveled to China uh, to do some work kind of scouting out a potential mission project and area for one of those men. And while we were there, we were invited to a very special dinner by a doctor and his wife. Their daughter had traveled to the U.S. for college and spent a couple of years in South Carolina where we were living and serving at that time. Their daughter was a believer, a genuine follower of Christ. And her parents at that point had not come to faith in Jesus Christ. But they so appreciated the hospitality that our church family had shown to their daughter, whose English name was Cherry, uh, that they wanted to reciprocate and, and show some hospitality. And since we were... Uh, part of that church, or at least two of us were, and then the other friend was closely associated. When this man and his wife found out we were coming, they said, you must come to dinner with us. And so at the appointed time, we met them at their apartment, and then they loaded us into their car and drove us to a hotel where they had reserved a very special private banquet room. That's very common in China. And as we entered the room, just the five of us, this large table uh, in the middle of the room was already laden with all kinds of food. It, it was a meal prepared right there. And the, this gentleman said some very kind words. He did not speak much English. Uh, so working through the translation of one of the friends, he expressed his deep gratitude and appreciation and, and essentially said to us, because you've treated our daughter as if she were your own during her two years in college, we want you to know we feel like you are our family. Welcome to the table. And so we began to eat. And no sooner were we enjoying the first portion uh, than the wait staff began to bring in other uh, menu items. And for almost two hours, just course after course after course after course came out. And if you've ever traveled, and it's not, just, it's not this way just in China, but there are many other countries where if you actually eat everything that's on the table, your host is offended. So it's a good thing to, to leave things on the table and to actually reach a point where you either politely say, I can't eat anymore, or in this case, where it was fully sincere, like, I cannot eat another bite. I mean, I'm, I'm to that point of misery. Um, and again, at the conclusion of the meal, this man expressed such great gratitude, and even as we were leaving, presented each of us uh, with a very, very expensive 
bottle of wine. I mean, it's just like, he, he could not have done any more for us. And it was, it was humbling, because I thought to myself, you know, I knew Cherry, was happy to see her worship with us as we uh, came uh, together for worship week in and week out, but, you know, I can't say that our family in particular uh, did a whole lot for her. I really felt unworthy, but happy to represent the church family that had done so much for her. But again, I look back on that and say the cost of the meal, which I have no idea. I'm going to put it, and I think this would be realistic. My friends could probably tell you. I'm going to put it at close to $1,000 for five of us. Um, The cost of the meal, the care, the planning that went into it, the gracious words. I mean, we left that meal not only physically full, but just feeling as if we had been lavishly cared for. Well, in the story we're going to read today, there is that same kind of generous, lavish care that is being provided for people who were in many ways the neglected ones. People who were used to leadership in their day and age, and whether it be the political side of leadership or the religious side, were used to seeing leadership exploit and take advantage of them or impose such harsh requirements or restrictions that they never felt that they were nurtured or cared for. And there's no evidence that they were being provided for. And what a contrast this portion of Scripture is to where we were last week when we saw at that birthday celebration that Herod Antipas threw for himself where he invited the power brokers and the noblemen together, and and it was a drunken, immoral gathering that was reserved only for the elite. What a contrast we're about to see between a feast that Jesus provides and the heinous banquet that Herod hosted. There's no doubt in my mind as we read this portion of scripture together that Mark, the author of this book, intends to strike a profoundly vivid contrast for us. So you follow along. I want to begin reading in verse 30 um, of Mark chapter 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What a remarkable story. So many things here for us to set our hearts on, to savor, because this is life-giving truth. It reveals to us Jesus, and it shows us how he feels and thinks and even responds to ordinary people like us. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus cares for disciples who need rest. It's part of his shepherding ministry. Now, it doesn't go the way that the disciples might have expected it, but it goes exactly as Jesus knows it will and even is planning for First of all, notice his comments to them. They've just returned from that short-term mission trip. We explored that over the last couple of weeks as we were working through Mark chapter 6. They returned from this trip. He had sent them out in partnerships and experienced many things and no doubt were, were weary. And so he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. That is a place that's free from distractions. A desolate place may have reference to a wilderness area. And it is interesting, if you think back to Mark 1, verse 12, where the, the, the gospel writer recorded that the Spirit of God immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. That was not only a place of temptation, but it was a place of, of deep and intimate fellowship with God on high. It was a place where the word had nourished his heart for 40 days while he fasted from physical food. It was a place where even at the culmination of that hour of temptation, the angels themselves had come to minister to him. So while we think of the wilderness temptation of Christ as a place of intense spiritual uh, testing and agony, perhaps more than that, it was a place of profound spiritual blessing for the Lord himself. Now, there's nothing to say that he was taking them to that very place for this season of rest. It just uses similar terminology. So it's a place that would be free from distractions. It's a place uh, that is away from the noise of life and ministry that they have been experiencing. It's probably not unlike some of your favorite places. Maybe you think of a particular location in the high mountains or at the coast and you say, that's my happy place. And by that you mean it's the place where I can leave all the pressures and cares and responsibilities that you face day in and day out. You can leave that behind for a little season and just enjoy the creation of our creator. And maybe you say, I love the coastline with its sandy beaches and the sound of those soothing waves, or I, I just love to be in the high mountains away from the, the smog or the wintertime inversions of this valley. Well, whatever that place is where you know that you would be away from the distractions, that's, that apparently is what Jesus has in mind. It's secondly, a place of refreshment. His intention is that they might rest a while. He intends to give them quiet, refreshment, even the word recreation in its purest sense. Now, we, when we think of recreation, we think of outdoor activities typically, don't we? Or you go to a gym where there's some kind of physical exertion. But if you think of that word and just kind of break it apart, recreate. It's a, it's a time or experience where you're kind of remade. 
in the inner person. And that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here for his disciples. Because, Mark explains, they had no leisure even to eat. That is, there, there was no favorable occasion. It's what some of you do most weeknights. You get off of work, you got to run to some other activity or meeting, or maybe your kids have a school event, you're grabbing stuff on the go, you're eating in the car, and you're saying, you know, I can only handle Taco Bell so many more times. Well, that's a little bit of what Mark is trying to communicate. They're probably grabbing a piece of bread on the go, a piece of fish, you know, as they move from one ministry opportunity to another. And remember some of the scenes that we've seen because Jesus has been miraculously healing people. They can't even enter a house without a massive crowd forming outside. It almost feels like a riot wherever they go. And Jesus is aware of that and knows that it would be good for them not only to be in a place away from the distractions, but to be in a place where they could actually enjoy a meal together. And so I, I love this third concept that is unfolding here. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, just Jesus and the twelve, a place to be together. But on this day, rest and a favorable occasion for a nice supper together are not what they find. And it seems as if the plans of the Lord are thwarted. I wrestled with this to some extent because I think, you know, Lord, they really did need rest. He needs rest. But look at what happens. As we read this story, again, people see them and figure out where they're headed Verse 33 says, they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Wouldn't that be disappointing? I'm going to confess that I'm not nearly as spiritual as our Lord is. Um, I'll tell you a story. Years ago, we, we, when we lived in South Carolina, we loved a vacation in a spot called Hilton Head Island. It's down on the southern uh, coast of South Carolina. And it was a popular destination, and there were a couple of years that we happened to go during a particular week where probably 50 to 60 people from our church were also there. And, and you feel a little bit of tension. I'm just going to tell you, and I've shared this with you before, by nature, I'm more introverted than extroverted. And I'll never forget that we were making plans to head down, and another uh, individual in our church found out we were going to be there, and he's like, hey, we're going to be there the same week. Maybe we could get together. And I actually said to him, no, probably not. <laughs> and I mean, his, his face, I mean, he was stunned by that. And I wrestled. I mean, I felt guilty at that moment. I'm like, I can be with you 50 other weeks out of the year. And, and we would have lunch you know, periodically or stop and talk about, like, this is, this is the one week where we can just be together as a family and we love to, you know, go to the, the beach and we had bikes and there's all kinds of fun stuff. And I thought, if I make, if, if I make, start making lunch appointments or coffee meetings, it's going to be like any other week. And so I, you know, risked offending him, but I actually said no. And I do feel a little bit of conviction in my heart because here this crowd comes running and, and Jesus doesn't step out of the boat and say to them, sorry, stay away or come back tomorrow or I'll see you in a week. He actually begins to care for them. And there's some, some very specific things in this text that actually ought to hearten all of us. You know, some of you even wrestle with the fact that how, in, how can 
the God of the universe, who we believe is infinite and eternal, actually care about me, little me, where I am? And isn't he bombarded at any given moment with thousands of people praying to him, making requests, Lord, save us, rescue us, meet this financial need, heal us. I mean, think of how many thousands of requests at any given second are rising from earth to the throne of grace. And some of you actually feel like you're so insignificant to God that he's got more important stuff to do. Can I tell you that stories like these are given so that you actually know his perspective on that very thing you wrestle with in your heart? Does he care about me? We've watched him already at multiple points through Mark's gospel allow individuals to interrupt him. Remember Jairus? And then even as he's on the way to Jairus' house to heal the daughter who's on her deathbed, the woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years and spent all she had and no physician can heal her, interrupts that and Jesus pauses, takes time with her, then resumes the trip to Jairus. Well, here's another interruption, humanly speaking, but, but Jesus is marvelous. So look at the text again. Look at verses 33 and following. Because what Jesus begins to do here is actually shepherd a suffering crowd. Notice verse 34 with me, please. Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. First of all, his, his love for them overflows. And that's the big difference between Jesus and most of the rest of us. Certainly me on that particular moment when my friend said, hey, want to get together at Hilton Head? No. Jesus sees this vast crowd and he is moved deeply. That word compassion, we've encountered it earlier. You remember the story where Jesus saw the leper and then reached out and, and touched him and healed him? Mark tells us that Jesus had pity on him. He had compassion and again, he's moved not just with one individual, he's moved by what he sees in front of him. This is a vast crowd that has no shepherd. Now, it's important for us to, to understand the concept of shepherding biblically, because that brings us to the second point. He's actually going to begin to lead them. They're like sheep without a leader. Now, we tend to think of a shepherd in more of a pastoral setting. You know, the, the flock is there, and the shepherd keeping watch. And, and there's kind of this sense of, of, a, of a rural uh, setting in front of us. But when the Bible uses the concept of shepherds uh, in this particular way, and you go, we'll go back to the Old Testament for a moment, it's actually referring to a leader. A leader who will provide care, protection, direction, uh, sometimes physical provision, all kinds of things that are loaded into this. So in the Jewish culture, the shepherd concept evokes the image of a strong leader, not so much a sentimental, rural, pastoral uh, type of idea. Now, Numbers 27, verses 16 and 17, which is the references on the screen, and if you'd like to turn there, that's a portion where Moses is reaching the end of his life and the conclusion of his role as leader over Israel, and he prays to God. For a strong leader, listen to the words, Moses says to God, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. It's a huge group. 
They are about to fulfill God's purpose for them to enter Canaan and and take the territory and land that he has reserved for them. It's going to call for a strong leader, and, and Moses begs God to provide that leader, and he did, and his name was Joshua. One author writes, in his compassion, Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, without a leader. Now think about where we were just last week, the deplorable ruler or we could even use this term, shepherd, Herod Antipater. He, he had no care or concern for the masses, did he? And I shared with you just a little bit of his family history where he was even willing to steal the wife of his half-brother. That's how he ended up with Herodias. Such a twisted, distorted family tree. This is a man who is full of, of personal lust and, and greed and ambition for power and recognition. He doesn't care about the ordinary common people. So that's on the political side of things. Then, if you've been here through the series, you'll recall that we have spent time looking at the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. The ones who were charged by God with a knowledge of the scriptures in order that they might teach and train others in the knowledge of God. But that's not what they had been doing. And the teaching ministry of Jesus is so different from the scribes, spiritually speaking, that one of the things that people are saying about Jesus is, where does he get this authority? His teaching is full of something that is very different from the scribes. Well, that's because the scribes, by and large, were out for themselves. So politically and religiously, you have examples of either false shepherds or abusive shepherds who were in power at that particular point. And Christ looks across this mass and he sees people who have no political direction, who have no spiritual nourishment, who are without a true shepherd. And that brings us to Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. Matt read this just before we worship the Lord with our offering. But if you go back even just a couple of verses prior to that, the Lord actually is confronting the rulers of Israel. And, and just a little context, Ezekiel lived about 600 years before Jesus. So this is, this is a deeply embedded problem in Israel. It's a deeply embedded problem in the world. We, even in our nation, have leaders of various kinds and philosophical backgrounds and such, but it, few and far between, it seems to be, that you find a leader, a, a politician, who truly serves the people. Whether it be at a local level, a state house, or even nationally in Washington, someone who says, I am your servant. Let me care for you. Let me truly push through legislation or policies that brings blessing. It's always been the way it is. So God comes to the rulers in Israel, though, and confronts them and says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they are scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. 
They wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And I cannot help but think that because our Lord was so immersed in the Holy Scriptures and they flow from His heart because He has taken them into His soul in those 30 years of life prior to His ministry, I cannot help but think that a passage like Ezekiel 34 may have come to the forefront of His mind as He looked upon thousands of people who had been used and abused by the Roman ruler Herod and had been used and abused by the religious scribes and Pharisees. And then those words from Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16, and I won't read all of them again, but these beautiful lines where the Lord himself says, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Now, that's the spiritual context that people have been waiting for for 600 years. Where will we find this leader? Where will we find a shepherd after God's heart? When will God himself arrive and shepherd us? So it's no small thing then when you read in verse 34, not only are they sheep like without a shepherd, but then in verse 34, he began to teach them with many things. Before the miracle of the loaves and fish, he unfolds the word. Mark doesn't focus on the content. He doesn't record for us the actual message that Jesus brought or the teaching points that the Lord himself brought out. But we've been watching from chapter 1, the Lord himself speak truth, calling people to repent of their sins, calling people to believe on him who he is, what he is doing, and what he will do at the cross in a few short weeks. Think of the words of our Lord, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is how man shall live. How thankful we can be that the Lord feeds our souls. Some of you have not Open God's word for yourself and the, the most nourishment you get is maybe coming to a place like this occasionally or you catch something on the radio or a podcast. But, you know, if, if you begin to open God's word personally and you begin to read it and as you read it, you say, oh, Lord Jesus, would you feed me? You would be amazed at what you find. He is a good shepherd who delights to feed our souls but he's also the shepherd who does provide for life itself, provides for our lives. And that's where this story is quite remarkable. And several things about this that begin to stand out to us. First of all, he provides in a way that is beyond human ability. Look at verses 35 and 36. A little humorous here in some respects, but if you put yourselves in the disciples' place at this moment, it doesn't, it doesn't seem or feel funny at all. So the hour grows late. The disciples say, it's a desolate place. The hour's late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countries, countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Very reasonable, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't think anybody walked in here today assuming that it's the responsibility of other people to feed them. Now, if you came in here with some sense that, well, other people ought to feed me, 
we would actually say, hmm, that's a little unreasonable on your part. And we might help to do something. But what the, the disciples are suggesting is not unreasonable. It's not rude. Uh, it doesn't show their indifference. It actually shows that they're concerned for this group. Jesus must have been teaching a long time at this point. But now look at this stunning command, verse 37. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. What? We can look at this and, and smile a little bit. And, and again, can we put it in context? What, what trip did they just come off of? Where Jesus said, only four things you can take with you? Did he provide for them on that trip? Housing? Food? Apparently. But now he ups it, doesn't he? It's not just, you guys go find a meal. Uh, why don't you feed this vast crowd? Which we'll get to in a few moments, but it's a huge crowd. Probably fifteen to 20,000 people. So it's a stunning command. It reminds me of Moses going back to the Old Testament, who himself was a shepherd, a faithful one in Israel. But in Numbers 11, verses 13 to 15, where the people have been grumbling and complaining that they don't have food that they like anymore, and, and Moses is feeling the pressure, and he's kind of wound up, and so again he cries to God, Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I mean, that's quite a prayer, isn't it? Any of you prayed to God like that lately? God, I am so sick and tired of these kids whining and complaining, and I try to cook them a meal, and they always say they want something else. It's driving me nuts. Just kill me now. We'll just multiply those few mouths that whine and complain in your household by about a million. You can understand some of Moses' exasperation at this point. He's not the first leader or follower of Jesus, given the responsibility of leading, who has to feed a crowd that's just way beyond his capacity. And furthermore, look again at the text with me, verse 37, the second half Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's an enormous sum. That's 200 days wages. About two-thirds of an annual salary. So again, these disciples are saying, look at that crowd. I mean, how much bread would we have to buy? How many days would we have to work? We're talking thousands of dollars to feed this assembly. And then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. As if they're going to go discover some hidden resource. You know, humanly speaking, that's the perspective. He knows exactly what they're going to find. So they go conduct this search. I don't know if they went through the crowd or they just went back to their boat. But here's what they come back with. Five and two fish. I, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Travis and I went fishing yesterday, and he's the expert. I just do what he tells me to do. And it was a good day. We pulled some fish out of the Provo River, and some of them we brought home. Four of them we brought home last night, and we uh, did our best to cook them up. And uh, it was a memorable dinner for several different reasons, maybe not the ones we had hoped for. But we had four fish. 
And it was plenty for our little, our little group. But they got two. Again, you just see that the Lord has put them in an impossible situation. But he's positioning them for that second part. They actually need the divine work. And humanly speaking, we would say it's miraculous. It's divinely miraculous. Look at verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. A sweet little touch. Mark uses a term here for groups that is used, as one author writes, of a group of people eating uh, or feasting together and suggests a relaxed, even, and here's a good word that you can add into your daily conversation this week, convivial atmosphere. And then there's some terminology here that's used in a way that it's as if Jesus, and, and Mark even notes, companies of 50s and, and hundreds, but it's as if he said, get in a group. And they probably did what most of us do. You find the people that you know, kind of like, we'll hang out with them. Well, if there have to be 50 of us, okay, what 50 do we want to be with? But you have this sense that, that the Lord is making them to sit down, and Mark even notes, in the green grass and little echoes of Psalm 23 of the Good Shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures in order that he might restore our souls. But here is Jesus. These people have no direction from the leadership, politically or religiously, and he's beginning to bring order, isn't he? He assembles them in such a way, and not just a utilitarian way to make it easier to serve the, the miraculously provided bread and fish that he's about to serve up, but even a sense of just gathering them so that they can actually enjoy the moment. The responsibility is not on them at this moment to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and see if the local bakers have enough to feed fifteen to 20,000 of them. No, Jesus assumes all that responsibility, organizes them in a way where this will be a meal to remember. And then it says, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Here's a question for you. What is the object of the blessing? Or to be a little more specific, who is the object of the blessing? Sometimes we say, and we'll even ask somebody, uh, would you say the blessing before we have a meal? And sometimes we even say, would you bless the food? And I think that's appropriate. But if we want to be really precise, biblically, out of this context, do you know who Jesus blessed? His Father in heaven. It would have been a typical Jewish blessing uh, where the Lord would have said something like, praise unto you, O Lord our God, King of the world. And as he continues in that prayer of blessing, giving thanks to our God and to our Father, Mark says he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, divided the two fish among them all, and then look at verse 42. It brings us to that third point. His provision is personally satisfying. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Our adversary, the devil, continually tells us that God's not as good as he says, that he's withholding good stuff from you, um, and that you really can't trust him, so go find your own satisfaction. 
But what God continually demonstrates as well as tells to us from the Old Testament through the New, from a passage like this back to Psalm 145.16 that tells us that God opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. This shepherd is good. And you can trust him. And even at this moment where you feel like something is being withheld from me and you feel like it's necessary for life or it would be a really good thing for me to have it, to experience it, to know it, uh, to to feel it at this moment, If, if the good shepherd has actually withheld that from you at this moment, it is not because he has gone back on his promises or decided that he wants to be mean or that he's indifferent to you. It's actually because in his great wisdom and in his goodness, he knows now is not the time. But he always brings his people to that place of abundant provision, of satisfying provision. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Look at verses 43 and 44. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish uh, were the leftovers. They gathered them up. And then Mark includes those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, kids. It's just kind of the way they took head counts in those days. Sounds a little different for us, and it was not an all-male crowd. Uh, and that's why we say estimates between fifteen and 20,000. Enormous gathering. An enormous gathering that had been provided for personally in a way that they're all satisfied. A, a, an enormous crowd that has been provided for abundantly. And I'm struck by this little point, too. The 12 who were just shaken in their boots earlier, or in their sandals... Uh, when Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Those guys who said, we got five loaves and two fishes, what do they walk away with? A basket full each. Because they're going to remain on mission, and the Lord knows they not only have to have supper today, but they need something tomorrow. And I think at least for that moment, he's like, I got you covered. Will you trust me? Personally satisfying, abundantly generous, This is the shepherd. I read this and I say, oh, Danny, why do you doubt the love of your Lord? Why do you feel like in those moments of inadequate resources, you've got to be the answer to your problems? Why do we take all of that weight on ourselves? Sometimes it's because we don't really know the good shepherd. Sometimes it's because we know him, but we don't really trust him. Sometimes it's because we're not patient to wait on him. There, there could be a hundred different reasons at this moment. But you know what the Lord wants to bring us back to? And he does it so gently, so graciously. He continually brings us to that point of saying, I am who I am. I will do what I have promised. You need to trust me. Rest in me. It's one of the reasons we chose what's a newer song to most of us, the shepherd song. And the little line in that chorus, so I will rest in you. Do, you. do you know how big Jesus is? Do you know how much he loves you, really? Do you know how serious he is about providing for all of your needs, whether they be of a physical nature or of a spiritual nature? Can you find any record in the Gospels? Start with Mark, work your way out to Matthew or Luke or John. Can you find any record in the Gospels where somebody who had a need came to Jesus and he said, sorry, no time for you today. I've got more important things to do. 
Can you find any record in all of Scripture where God had somebody come to him in their need and said, please help, and he crossed his arms, as it were, and said, you're on your own. You can't. Now, sometimes he makes us wait, but it's never because he's indifferent or preoccupied or just has other stuff. It's actually because he's writing an even greater ending to the story than what we might have hoped for. Jairus is the most recent example. His daughter's sick. He wants her healed. Jesus delays so he can serve this lady. While he does that, the daughter dies. What is Jairus to think at that moment? Jesus has a greater story, an ending in that story. I know that some of you are at a place right now saying, but it's frustrating or it's scary or it's overwhelming to me. I just don't know. Trust this shepherd. He is good. You know, the disciples didn't get the dream vacation they were hoping for, did they? And apparently, they didn't even get a few minutes of leisure to enjoy that particular supper. Because Jesus turned them into the wait staff. This is another one. I, I want this to be replayed. I mean, I have all kinds of goofy thoughts that start rolling through my head. You see those 12 running around, group to group. We need more fish. Group number three. But at the end, what they've experienced is a supper that went far beyond their wildest dreams and imaginations. They experienced the power of the living God. Saw provision that they would talk about the rest of their days. And because we believe the Apostle Peter was the one who gave most of this material to Mark, you know, however many years beyond this experience, Peter's certainly still talking about it and others are recording it. What a glorious supper. What an astonishing moment of recreation. A dinner never to be forgotten. Sometimes you feel like you're just one of this amorphous mass of people. But do you know what? To God, you are precious. He doesn't look at a a shot like that and just see a wash of humanity. He looks at a group like that and sees individual people who need a shepherd. You may not even be able to find yourself in that picture. I I doubt it because I just pulled it off of one of those sites. So if you're there, tell me. That'd be kind of a cool little moment. But rather than feeling like you're just lost in a crowd, that you are of little to no consequence for God Almighty, you need to hear a story like this and let it just sink deeply in your soul to know that God cares about providing for you and satisfying you and leading you to life eternal. So as we think it through again, first question, who shepherds you? Can you say by faith today, Jesus is my shepherd? Jesus is my shepherd because I have put my faith and trust in him. I am trusting him. I'm not perfect, but I'm turning away from sin. And daily I'm trying to turn to him and follow him. And as I understand his word, I obey it. And and as I see him directing my life, I try to follow him. Jesus is my shepherd. Some of you can say that with joy and confidence. Others of you, if you were honest, would have to say... I think I'm trying to be my own shepherd. 
You don't have to. And if you keep trying, you're going to realize the futility and deep disappointment that that will bring. So stop. And turn to Jesus. Who shepherds you? Second thought, what does it mean to be shepherded by Jesus? There are many things we could share here, but very quickly, a few thoughts were coming to my mind. According to Romans 8, 1 through 4, it means that Jesus fulfills the requirements of God's law for you and gives you the perfect record of his righteousness. Which means you're not trying to make God happy with you. Oh, we want to please him. But I'm not working today to get a place in heaven in the presence of God. No, because Jesus is the shepherd who fulfills God's requirements. According to Isaiah 53, verse 5, it means that he takes our sin upon himself and bears all of God's wrath and punishment that we earned and deserved. And there's nothing left for you to pay. It means if Jesus is your dying sacrifice shepherd, you put your faith in him, God's wrath will never be poured out on you. It means according to Galatians 4 verse 5 that you are the eternally adopted child of God and given the full rights and privileges of every child of God. What an astonishing thought. You know, Jesus did not invite this crowd to sit down on the green grass in order that he might exploit them. And he doesn't invite you to, invite you to come to him in order that he might exploit you, abuse you, take advantage of you. He invites you to come to him that he might bless you eternally. That's what it means to be shepherded by Jesus. And the final question, will you rest your soul on him? For some of you, that will mean that today's a day where you say, I'm done trying to be my own shepherd. Jesus, I come to you. Others, it will mean, you know what, Lord? I've been trusting you for my salvation, the forgiveness of my sins, but I've kind of reverted to some of those old ways. I'm trying to be my shepherd today. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to rest in you because you're good. You're gracious. You provide abundantly and generously. You have promised to lead me for your namesake. Jesus, there's no one like you. Let's bow our heads as we do. I just want you to speak to God, whatever's in your heart. His gospel is not a message of self-help and self-improvement. It's a message that invites you to turn from your sin and turn in faith to him. Very simply. Will you rest your soul in him? Lord Jesus... This is not a crowd of 15 to 20,000, but the couple of dozen of us who are here this morning all have very personal needs. And we ask that each might find rest in you alone. Would you help us to sing in faith and live out the truths of these words that we walk through the valley, that we can't see the way when the shadows surround us? We do not need to fear because you are with us and you always provide. 
Sometimes it's a lonely path, but you are the shepherd who stays by our side. Because of all that you have promised to be, all that you have promised to do, we can rest our souls in you and trust in you alone. Thank you that you are the shepherd who leads us. Thank you that you are the shepherd who provides. Thank you that you are the shepherd who loves us. You really are all that we need.